0: This is the Everything 80s Podcast, Episode 26, The Story of Flight of the Navigator. Hey guys, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything Eighties podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out today and looking at the story of the beloved flight of the Navigator. Everything that went into the development of the movie, uh, behind the scenes stuff. Hopefully, you like this a lot. So, before we start, though, if you haven't already, make sure you to subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. I'm pretty much everywhere, everywhere you'd want me to be. Uh, that way, you won't miss any of the shows. You get them automatically sent to you. And everybody's happy. Okay, let's get right into this. All right, here we go. So in the early days of uh, CGI, a spaceship time travel story ended up being the dream of most every kid who got to watch it. Flight of the Navigator came out in 1986. told the story of 12-year-old David Freeman, who is abducted by an alien spacecraft and is returned eight years later. It was released by Walt Disney Pictures. And would be a big success and would have even more of like sort of a larger cult following. I own Flight of the Navigator on VHS and I can tell you that it was one of our most watched videotapes in the house. I'm not sure how it became a staple of viewing, but how we even became aware of it. I I definitely didn't see it in theaters and I, I barely remember it being a thing and like commercials for it and stuff like that. But somehow, you know, it just came into our hands. I think that's when... Home video, like home video was bigger, but where you would just see something that said Disney and were more likely to just take a chance on it. But it would be, you know, one of my favorite movies of the 80s. So, you know, it's the perfect story of or movie for young kids with dreams of flying in their own spaceship, but it's ultimately, you know, telling the story of the importance of family and home. And it featured Paul Rubens, aka Pee Wee Herman, for some reason, even though he was never listed in the credits. We'll get to all that. They've been talking about doing remakes for years, but I'm not holding my breath on this one anymore. So let's look back at Flight of the Navigator. So in case you haven't seen it or need a quick refresh, here's the basic plot. 12-year-old David Freeman lives in Fort Lauderdale, Florida with his parents and younger brother Jeff. On his way walking through the forest to pick up Jeff, he actually falls into a ravine and has just knocked the F out. When he comes to, he heads home only to find that his parents aren't living there anymore. He passes out, and when he comes to, he's in the hospital as he's matched the photo of a missing person but has somehow not aged at all. In the meantime, NASA has captured a crashed alien spacecraft, crap, spacecraft. If that's in it, it's showing I'm not editing anything out. It's got to stay. And they're keeping this spacecraft hidden uh, and under wraps. So somehow David's brain images are showing the exact image of the captured spaceship, and they keep him at NASA to study him more. Turns out David's mind is filled with a ton of star charts and information, and they find out he was taken to a planet called Phalon. He was only gone for 2.2 hours, but had been traveling at the speed of light, so time was normal for him, but eight years had passed on Earth. David is now getting telepathic communication from the spaceship, and he goes to meet it, finding out it's called the Trimaxian drone ship. Well, the, the operator is named that anyway. David calls him Max, and he and Max Get the hell out of Dodge. Max is trying to collect biological organisms from around the universe. So Max Max needs the charts from David's mind, and he gets them. Max is also taking a lot of data from David's brain and now is somehow turned into Pee Wee Herman. David has already met his aged parents and brother and has a chance to go back to live with them, but it's a world he doesn't know. He takes the risk to travel back in time to try to get back to his normal world and his family. Spoiler alert, it works. Okay. Let's look at the early production on flight of the Navigator, and what do flight of the Navigator and Grease have in common? Well, they share the same director. Flight of the Navigator was directed by Randall Kleiser, and he also worked on Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, Big Top Pee Wee, The Blue Lagoon, and White Fang, and classic movie resume right there. Grease came out in nineteen sorry nineteen seventy eight, and it might be why. Flight of the Navigator is set in 1978. You can also hear you're the one that I want when the family's riding around in that vintage station wagon. Flight of the Navigator would mainly be filmed in Florida, but was originally going to be filmed in Los Angeles and Dallas, but there was so much bad weather, it ended up delaying the shoot. Florida can be really hit or miss weather-wise, but they got pretty lucky and were able to make use of the warm weather and all the good sunshine. Sound stages in Miami would be used for all the NASA-based shots, and here's something I didn't know until, like, researching all this. Some of the movie was filmed in Norway. And the outskirts of Oslo would be used for spaceship shots, you know, like when it's flying over marshes or countrysides. That's all Norway there. Okay, so here's the early production company. And Fly the Navigator. Fly the Navigator is associated with Disney, but they really had nothing to do with it at its start. It was actually an independent production by a Norwegian company called Viking Film. But they went bankrupt and during the shooting of the movie which sucks so it seems like a tough movie for an independent film company to take on and they might have bitten off more than they could chew with it so after going bankrupt viking film didn't want to give up on the movie as they thought they had something really unique on their hands so they approached disney about taking over the project and disney went for it so i mean it never started with anything to do with with disney Disney liked the movie, but they weren't head over heels for it. Uh, they, they had released the movie Return to Oz the year before, and it wasn't getting great feedback. So live action movies seem to trip them up a bit, and they just they didn't know how to market Flight of the Navigator. Also, Return to Oz is a kind of messed up movie, if you remember that one at all. So I don't know where they were going with that one. They handed the responsibility of this project over to a group called producer sales organization or PSO and PSO distributed distributed a lot of movies overseas. So they team up with Disney to, um, so they can both distribute the movie. Disney would focus on the U.S. PSO would target the rest of the world. Uh, that producer sales organization would also go bankrupt in 1986, the year the movie came out. So it feels like there's some sort of curse related to Flight of the Navigator. And then I don't know, Joey Kramer who played David in the movie has had some issues too including arrests uh for drug dealing and bank robbery. So, I don't know, take that for what it's worth. Let's look at like I mentioned the some of the early use of CGI was done in Flight of the Navigator. And you know, obviously groundbreaking at the time. It's in, the the shots like the ship specifically hold up completely well today like for how old this movie is like the the shots look like they were just made like i don't think they could make them look any better that's how good it was the technology to create a photorealistic image that could reflect the environment around it as the uh, like as the ship does was basically brand new technology it's called reflection mapping when you it's like you're looking at a mirror um, this is crazy stuff at the time. So Jeff Kleiser's brother, um, Randall, was in charge of creating the ship. His brother had shown him the play of the Navigator script, and Jeff thought how the ship should be chrome, and that they would be able to use this new reflection mapping software, and that it would just make everything look really cool. So Disney loved the early images of what was possible with the ship, but for some reason they there were internal conflicts with the company that created the effect called, the company was called Digital Effects. Disney wasn't going to hire a company that would end up disbanding, so Jeff would get on board with omnibus computer animation to do the work on Flight of the Navigator. So to create some of the effects of the ship, they would digitize moving video images from videotape that had been transferred from the background film plates in which the spaceship was to be seen. These images are now mapped frame by frame onto the animated spaceship, scanned onto 35 millimeter film, and then composited optically over the film background plate. So they would then have to like, you know, render the spaceship to get it onto film by using a prototype, like supercomputer. They they didn't have computers built to do this sort of thing. And like rendering down an image, this is still tough today. Like, um, if you look at big movies, like say something like the Transformers movies or Marvel, like to render down the video, it takes huge amounts of data and energy. And that's today. So but this is back in 85 or 86 or whatever. So the supercomputer prototype they had had very little disc space. So they would have to render on the fly, sending the data directly to the film recorder as it was being computed. And this is a sketchy way to work, but it's 80, 1985, and there's basically no other options. So, due to working this way, they had no way to reshoot a scene. Uh, they ha- like they're uploading this in like real time. It's it's crazy. The computer would also crash like five to six times a day, and it just it made it incredibly tight to get all the shots done in time. Let's look at the music of Flight of the Navigator. And the the soundtrack for Flay the Navigator really made re- use of the the nineteen eighties synth based sounds and sort of dance patterns. Is probably well, it seems like they definitely were capitalizing on the success of the advancement of like new wave music. And the problem is, it gives the movie an extremely dated feel. Like what's really cool and current at the time, like it's probably not going to hold up. And that like that goes for any era. Say like right now, like a movie comes out and it's using all like trying to think like mumble rap garbage or whatever that's gonna date anything that bad and and like everything was so advanced and technological they probably thought oh this this is what music's gonna sound like for 40 years so it really dates the movie but it's kind of cool and it kind of gives it a its own unique tone it was you know, I like, I like it. And again, we liked it at the time. And when you go back, you're like, oh yeah, it's kind of takes you back. The music was composed by Alan Silvestri, who had just come off one of the best soundtracks ever in Back to the Future. So that Back to the Future used a full orchestra and he would use an electronic score to match the technological theme of Flight of the Navigator. It makes sense to like go with that as that's kind of the basis of the whole movie. So to me though, it always had that sort of Beverly Hills cop Miami vice sort of video game feel to it, but it still, it created real moods. Um, It created like that real sort of texture to the movie. um, Gives, gives each theme like it it kind of is a good backdrop to each theme and everything like that. So we'll get into, (laughs) us talking all about why in the hell Pee Wee Herman is in this movie. So as a kid, I was obsessed with Pee-wee Herman and Pee-wee's Playhouse and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And the character of Max sounds exactly like Pee-wee Herman. And I knew that Pee-wee Herman was played by Paul Rubens. And I remember looking through the credits because I wanted to see him. But the voice of Max, if you remember, you probably looked this up too. The voice of Max was played by someone called Paul Mall, So why the hell is Paul Mall? Or, like, who is Paul Mall and why was it such a blatant ripoff? So it turns out it was Paul Rubens, but why wasn't he properly credited? According to the director, it was because he wanted to remain low key, which is idiotic considering he's doing one of the most distinctive voices in the history of television. So, like, you already, whether it's a ripoff of him or the actual voice, you know that's Pee Wee Herman, whether you call him Paul Mall or Paul Rubens this was the this was pre um incident exposure when Paul Rubens would be arrested in a movie theater, so like that wasn't a factor. the first movie like Paul Rubens was so blacklisted after if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google Paul Rubens in movie theater actually be careful, be careful what you Google, but you probably know this story, and he was blacklisted, no one wanted to touch him, and then his, the first movie he was put back into was in Batman Returns by Tim Burton. What was that? 92. I can't remember when that came out and he played um, the penguins dad, like just for a brief second. I don't even think he has a line in it, but like that, that was considered like scandalous to put Paul Rubens in a movie. So that wasn't an issue. So like, I don't know why all the secrecy Paul, like Paul Rubens and Pee Wee Herman were big in 1986. So this may have been done as a way to surprise people who went to see the movie as they I think maybe just they wouldn't see his name associated with it so it was just as a way to be like oh wow that's Pee Wee Herman you know and that wasn't a way to draw people in necessarily so like and that might have changed the direction of how it was marketed because people like oh it's Pee Wee Herman in a movie it's going to be a wacky whatever so I guess that's one of the reasons I have discovered a major plot hole with all this though after Max does the mind transfer of all the data and the star maps, he also gets it crossed up with a lot of what fills the mind of a 12-year-old David Freeman. You know, like when he does that whole, like, 2 two beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. He's got all that information in his head now. The problem is... In David's Mind is coming from nineteen sorry, 1978, and if the voice was being used as something that would have been familiar to David, it would be impossible to be Pee-wee Herman as Pee-wee's Big Adventure didn't come out till 1985. Paul Rubens didn't even have his first uh, HBO special until 1981 where he did like Pee Wee Herman live. The first time the Pee Wee Herman character was ever seen on TV was on the dating show in 1979. So unless David saw him performing with the groundlings is where he first debuted the character Pee Wee Herman. I don't know <laughs> what the whole plot of the movie is in that sense, thinking like they took a voice that would seem familiar. I re- it honestly makes no sense to this day. Why they had the voice of Pee Wee Herman. Okay. Here's the reception to Flight of the Navigator. So Flight of the Navigator did pretty well as far as its critical response. It was generally praised uh, by time, like things like the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. Even today, it's got a 83% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It comes out on the same weekend as the infamous Howard the Duck movie. Also coming out that weekend, Friday the 13th, Part 7. And that was July 30th, 1986. And on its opening weekend, it made $3.1 million, which today would equal about $7 million. So nothing really good. Like, not horrific, but like kind of okay, if you can consider that a classification. It ended up being number nine for all movies that opening weekend. And overall, it made around $18.5 million, which converted for today is around $42 million. So it was made for $9 million. So in that sense, it did okay. Not amazing, but definitely okay. Okay, let's look at some random facts about Flight of the Navigator. And the first one is early foreshadowing. So what that means is we're looking at how the people at NASA might have been showing that they were the bad guys in the movie as indicated in the scene where David first moves into his room. You remember they had on the bed, there was a bunch of random toys for him. If you look closely at that, among the, I mean, it was kind of product placement, but it was also a little foreshadowing. Among all those things were two specific toys. There was a Decepticon named Shrapnel and a G.I. Joe Cobra, uh, one of the water moccasin boats, but it was specifically a Cobra vehicle. So it would seem interesting that the evil NASA would also give him the evil Decepticon and Cobra toy possibly indicating their motives. You know, why wouldn't they give him uh, an Autobot, like an Optimus Prime or a G.I. Joe figure? So that looks like that was a little bit of foreshadowing. Next random fact is about Sarah Jessica Parker. And if you remember, a young Sarah Jessica Parker would play Carolyn McAdams, who was one of the young workers at NASA and helped David escape. She was coming off a pretty big hit and starting to become a pretty big star specifically after Footloose. And then the movie girls just want to have fun. She doesn't seem to really give a crap about the movie. Doesn't have a soft spot for it all. And to her, it was pretty much just a quick gig and a payday. Can't, yeah, I mean, you can't blame anyone for that, but she'd been asked about her time in the movie and what drew her to it. But she's always been pretty dismissive of it saying she didn't even know what the movie was about okay Carrie. cool i mean you might want to look into it i don't know i get it when you're like just starting out and you have these few hits you probably just want to strike while the iron's hot so whatever you know okay and now we'll look into like i mentioned the idea of the flight of the navigator remake and i feel like we've been hearing about this forever like every few years it kind of pops up in the news cycle like flight of the navigator and Some things I'm not on board with as far as doing remakes or reboots, but I think *Flay the Navigator would work very well. It's a pretty timeless story. It works in any day and setting um, or any, you know, period of time or setting. The technology is obviously caught up and like as good as it holds up, like I think the technology, the way they use it is not meant to like overpower the movie. It's just, it's meant to be like a tool to accentuate the movie. And I think they would take that same approach. Uh, I think they can make something pretty epic. Like it goes back as far as 2009, where they said a remake was in work. Then in 2012, Disney hired Colin Trevorrow to rewrite a script for it. Turns out that's the guy who made Jurassic World. So that's, I'm okay with that because I think Jurassic World was really good. Um, in In 2017, Lionsgate and the Jim Henson Company announced that a reboot of Flight of the Navigator is now in pre production. That's as much that it's known right now. I feel like, like, I don't know. I think you can just be talking about a movie and it's considered in pre-production. So who knows how far that actually goes. Like if anyone's on board, like if they have writers or producers or whatever. So I feel we shouldn't get our hopes up, but here's hoping. I think it would work. I think it would work as a Netflix movie, which I think ultimately like most movies are going to be released on in that platform. I think it would work. Okay. So to finish up play, the navigator is great. It's a great story. Um, it very easily could have never existed when you look at all the early problems getting it made and produced. But luckily we were given what I think is one of the best kids movies of the eighties. I watched it not long ago. And like I said, I think it holds up except for some of the music, but then that gives it sort of like it's, um, status of an eighties movie. And, you know, like we appreciate older movies, uh, for, like being a snapshot of that time period. And, like, if it uses an orchestral score, say, like Back to the Future, like Indiana Jones movies, it, it makes it more timeless. Um, but this makes it represent, you know, the decade it came out with. And I think that gives it more than nostalgia. So, I mean, that's the only thing you might find distracting in it. But all in all, pretty awesome. So, that's everything to do with Flight of the Navigator. Hopefully, you like this episode. I'll leave it – I'll cut her off here. Again, if you like the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm there. If you really like the show, hook me up with a rating and review. That way more people get to see it, and I appreciate you. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. 88 miles per!